So, you know, I want to talk about these different things, but also this general phenomenon. Yes. Why do different places choose sometimes a little bit? Michael Suarez. I'm the director of Rare Book School, and for my punishment this evening, I get to introduce Terry Bellinger, the founding director. This is not an easy task, especially for a group, many of whom have known Terry for a very long time, far longer than I. But let me refresh your memory. The first thing you need to know about Terry Bellinger is that he's an operator. And thank God he's an operator, because if he weren't, Rare Book School never would have been started, and it never would have survived. The second thing you need to know about Terry Bellinger is that he likes to drink 
good wine. <laughs> and this was extremely important for the foundational years of Rare Book School, it seems to me, because he built coalitions of bibulous men and women who were willing to do anything for him so long as they could go to his parties and drink that wine. And so there were coalitions of, of book scholars and librarians from all around the world who were extended members of the New York Wine Club, officially or not, and he was able to uh, galvanize their support over time. The third thing you need to know about Terry Bellinger is he's an operator. <laughs> and so when he came to the University of Virginia, he would not be daunted by all the obstacles in his way, and he found a way forward. From 1983 to 2009, Terry Ballinger steered this ship through some very high seas indeed. And as many of you will know, he won a MacArthur Genius Grant for doing so. Terry likes to say with great self-deprecation, well, they like people who founded schools. They gave one to a chap who founded a clown school as well. <laughs> yeah, I guess my question is, where's that clown school now? <laughs> because what Terry Ballinger started and what he brought to the University of Virginia has flourished in no small measure because of Terry's bloody-mindedness because of Terry's tenacity, because of Terry's intellectual brilliance. You don't say no to Terry Ballinger until you've looked into the matter very closely. On a more personal note, and I said this the last time I had to talk about Terry Bellinger, which was on a Saturday night at Rare Book School, or a Sunday night at Rare Book School, there are people to whom one ends up owing a great debt. And I find that I owe Terry Bellinger a tremendous debt because I had... Oh, that's going to buzz because you're in front of the thing. Go ahead. <laughs> he wants to hear about the debt. <laughs> and he wants to collect it too. <laughs> I find that I owe Terry Bellinger a great debt because he came to me and suggested that I consider applying to be the director of Rare Book School. Uh, he welcomed me extremely well, and he helped show me the ropes in the beginning, and I'm very grateful to Terry for the community that he then passed on to me and to a number of us in the room. Tonight we celebrate 25 years on ground. It's not because today is the feast of all saints, <laughs> all the holy men and women of the church. That has nothing to do with it. But if there is a secular holiness in tenacity, in brilliance, in being an operator, in being someone who knows how to build a coalition and get things done, then Terry Bellinger belongs to a secular pantheon of saints. Please join me in welcoming him. did not add what I usually also say when the MacArthur comes up, that I am a genius and I have credentials <laughs> to show for it. What is less well known is what I am a genius in. So
self-promotion. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I brought a prop. It's called Reminiscences of a Very Old Man. And it's the autobiography of John Sarchain, the great mezzotint engraver in Philadelphia, the father of Emily Sartain, who founded the Moore College of Art in Philadelphia. It came up in my rare book school class last week, and we didn't have a copy. Well, we do now. So, <laughs> the 25th anniversary. Okay, the difficulty with talking to you is that uh, some of the people here can recite in unison some of my stories, because uh, they've been around for a long time, as Michael said. But for the odd person who doesn't know how all this began, I'm going to summarize very briefly the story before the University of Virginia. In the 1960s, and to a greater extent, in the 1970s, the United States printing industry moved from a letterpress environment to an offset environment, offset lithography. It did this because though the two processes are comparable in utility and flexibility, offset lithography can at every stage of the game use a cheaper paper than letterpress can. Think, those of you who are grown-ups here, think of Life magazine on clay-coated paper that was so smooth it was like glass. That's what letterpress wants. Because offset is actually printed from an, a cover a rubber cover offset roll, it can push into the paper and the paper can be cheaper. That's why all of our printing is offset because paper is the largest single expense in any kind, in almost any kind of commercial printing. The result of that was that beginning in the early 1970s, an enormous amount of letterpress equipment came available all over the country, notably Vandercook proof presses, which you could get if you were just willing to come and get them. But it was also true that you could get foundry type and other printing house equipment that New York shops were simply throwing away or selling at risible prices. And that really is where the stuff, the rock on which the Rare Book School, the Book Arts Press Church was founded, uh, comes from. It was the tail end of the letterpress industry. And the great private press printers in this country of the second half of the 20th century, notably Claire Van Vliet, got their start because they could buy letterpress equipment very cheaply. Claire bought the type of the Saturday Evening Post, <laughs> for example, of Sainted Memory. Now, when there were major changes in the printing industry in the early 19th century with the coming of much faster iron and then steel presses and uh, the paper making machine and soon enough the coming of starch cloth suitable for bindings. There was what we saw in the English speaking world, the first renaissance of interest in the history of the book. The fish in a tank don't notice the water unless the level begins to sink. There was similarly a great revival of interest in the history of printing in the 1970s, and I think that it is directly related 
to the enormous changes in technology, not only between letterpress and offset, but between everything and computers. The American Printing History Association, 1974, was founded. The American uh, Type Founders uh, Fellowship, 1975, date after date after date in the 1970s, is directly related, not really to nostalgia, uh, but uh, certainly in the same part of the territory. The Columbia Library School was the oldest in the world. It was a master's level program, also a doctoral level program. And when it suddenly was clear in the 1970-71 academic year, it happened almost overnight, that there weren't going to be any more jobs in academe in the humanities. I found myself teaching uh, first part-time and then full-time in the Columbia <coughs> Library School simply because Alan Hazen, who had been teaching descriptive bibliography there as a member of the Columbia English Department, where I was myself a student, uh, had a heart attack and I uh, took over for his courses at very short notice. And a year or so later, Richard Darling, the dean of the school, asked me to develop a program for the training of rare book librarians and antiquarian booksellers at Columbia, subjects in which I was perfectly innocent of any information whatever. But never mind, I had an enormous advantage. There was a large number in the country of uh, young people enmeshed in doctoral programs deeply enough so they couldn't really get out but knowing that they were not likely to find work when they completed because there was none. And a number of them, a good number of them, came to library school to stay in the academic orbit because there were still jobs in libraries because of the enormous amount of material that libraries had bought in developing their PhD programs in the 1950s and 60s. I had a further advantage at the library school in that I was the youngest full-time faculty member by 11 years. <laughs> so that uh, I was able to attract students who'd come to the library school for a career in academic librarianship and nudge them into a career in rare books. And they were very good indeed. <coughs> Richard Darling really gave me an enormously free hand, and I'll always be grateful to him. He let me form my own friends group, which, if you think about it, is not only absurd, <laughs> but uh, dangerous, and that to the extent that it succeeded, it competed with the library school's own friends group. But this enabled me, in a modest way, to begin building the uh, School of Library Service teaching collections and also, it enabled me to run a program of evening lectures. By the 1980s, we were running 10 evening lectures a week. And people from all over Manhattan would come to them. They were at 6 o'clock, giving people a chance to come up in the subway. And at the lectures and at the socializing around those lectures uh, were a great many people who became interested in the Columbia program and who were very helpful in furthering its goals and objectives. 
Michael Turner gave Rare Book School, it was of course then called the Book Arts Press. Michael Turner, the head of Rare Books at the Bodleian, at, at the time he was head of the John Johnson collection there, gave Book Arts Press lecture number one in 1972. I am giving Rare Book School lecture number 619 at the moment. <laughs> Darling retired in, uh, in 1984 and was succeeded by Robert Wedgworth, the very distinguished former executive director of the American Library Association. And he gave an even freer reign. Important because Rebel School started really as a summer camp for my own students. And it consistently ran a deficit because I was required to give up 40% of the gross as overhead to Columbia. And there was simply no way that I could balance my books, and we tried hard, uh, losing 40% of my tuition income. So we ran a deficit. And by the time we left Columbia in 92, the deficit was in six figures. That should not have happened. Bob Wedgworth let it happen because it was a relatively small amount in a much bigger budget. But it. Uh, really enabled us to do all sorts of things that we certainly could not have done otherwise. Now, in a nine-month program, the principle of garbage in, garbage out pertains. If you have good students, it is impossible to spoil them completely over a nine-month period. Because Columbia was the most expensive library school in the country, in the most expensive city in the country. The program attracted ambitious students. And they went out and to a very satisfying degree began getting the jobs. There was a diminishing number of jobs in the 70s, but there were enough so that my students tended to get them. By the early 1980s, Edwin Wolfe, the uh, celebrated head of the library company of Philadelphia, told me, oh yes, I know all about your program. Whenever there's a conference, your students stand around at the receptions in the middle in a circle facing inward. <laughs> <laughs> and every once in a while, somebody in the circle turns and points to somebody outside the circle, and everybody in the circle laughs and then the person turns back, <laughs> facing inward in the circle. One of the reasons to start Rare Book School was to make available the education that we were putting together at Columbia for those who had the misfortune already to have a library degree and therefore could not come to Columbia and get another one. And I took the curriculum that we had developed. Mind you, this is not just me. This is Paul Banks doing preservation and conservation with Gary Frost. This is Tom Tansel teaching descriptive bibliography. This is Susan Summer teaching music librarianship. Uh, uh, Robert Davis and Susan, uh, Robert Sink and Susan Davis teaching archives and so on and so on. It was a really distinguished uh, bunch of instructors, so much so that in a one-year program you couldn't take all the rare book courses. There were nine of them, and there were some requirements of 
uh, uh, required of everybody. So, uh, we took parts of the, of the uh, curriculum and divided it up into five-day units and then found people willing to teach six hours a day for five days. From the beginning, admission was competitive. People applied. And at the beginning, there were 16 people in each class because our classrooms were just the right size for that bigger than the ones we're using now. All the courses were originally taught with two people because in my innocence, I did not believe, it didn't even occur to me, that one person could teach at this level six hours a day for five days. And we even had half-day courses. The graduates of the Columbia program, which mind you was both rare book librarianship and antiquarian bookselling, proved to be the spine of practically everything that happened over the next several decades. I'm going to read the names of the ones that many of you will know because some of them I think will surprise some of you. These are all graduates of the Columbia Master's Program. Martin Antonetti, John Bidwell, David Ferris, Joan Friedman, James Green, Melissa Mead, Richard Noble, Catherine Reagan, Alice Schreier, Daniel Traster, David Weitzel. Others, perhaps not so well known here, include Carol Briggs, Donald Farron, Robin Hollis, Samuel Streit, Susie Taraba, Peter Van Wingen, David Warrington. It includes dealers, including Jude Lebrano, J&J Lebrano Rare Books, Bruce McKittrick, Jeff Mansavis, Nina Buzinski. A great many of those names are still very much attached to Rare Book School today. So, why did we leave Columbia? Well, we left Columbia because we were thrown out. 50% <laughs> of Columbia's budget, directly or indirectly, is gift. And the library school alumni was not a major feature of annual giving for the university at large. There were individual members, individual alumni of the law school and the business school and the medical school who gave more to the university each year than the entire 6,000 member <coughs> School of Library Service alumni body. <laughs> and we all know that the first duty first duty of a bureaucracy is self-perpetuation. Columbia uh, closed the library school, one, because it needed dorm space. At Columbia, you don't build a dormitory. First you buy land, then you get sued. Then you convert the land to a dormitory and get sued again. And if you're lucky, 10 years after the first lawsuit, you have a new dormitory. In the 60s and 70s, Columbia undergraduates clubbed together and rented apartments in New York City because it was cheaper than the dorms. But in the 70s and 80s, that was no longer the case. And there was a great demand for dorms. The law school could not admit the number of people that wanted to because they could not provide dormitories for them. The library school had a share of dormitories. Second, Butler Library uh, 
opened in 1934 with a floor devoted to the School of Library Service was badly out of room by the 1980s and the university library wanted the space that the library school occupied for its own purposes. Columbia's closing of the library school was a perfectly reasonable act. The manner that they closed it was not. Uh, the manner in which they closed it was entirely reprehensible. They went after the quality of the school and attempted to say that the school was being closed because it was insufficiently good. A hostile committee was formed and when the hostile committee uh, disagreed with this, with, with this assessment and said the library school should continue, the university suppressed the document. So Columbia remains on my list and I do not mean my birthday list. <laughs> so what to do? Fortunately, I had a mole in the Columbia University Library Administration who told me in 1989 that in a secret committee of which he was a member, the members had been told to plan for the increase in space about a library, including the library school space. So it was clear that it was just a matter of time before we were made to leave the building which we did in 1992. Where to go? I got very good advice from William Joyce, who was then a head of special collections at Princeton and who was teaching in the program at Columbia. He said, stay away from Harvard, stay away from Princeton, stay away from Yale, because they and a few other places like Chicago have uh, sufficient uh, self-confidence so that there's one game you can never play. You can never say to these institutions, my coming to you will enhance your reputation. Not if you're a Nobel Prize winner in physics. It does not work. Harvard always believes, probably correctly, that your reputation will be enhanced if you come them, not the reverse. So Columbia asked me to retain the program. I had a doctorate in the English department. It would have been easy with tenure. Uh, in the library school, it would have been easy for me to walk across 116th Street and just continue the program out of the English department. But I did really not wish to compete with my former self. and. Uh, Columbia was not covering itself in glory in this whole business anyway. So where to go? In the newsletter that I was writing at the time, I put the school up for sale as such. And I got nibbles from the National Gallery of Art. That would have been very interesting, I think. They have a major research program. And I was invited to uh, transfer to UCLA and because if I jumped from my then rank as associate professor to full professor at UCLA, which I insisted on, what the hell, <laughs> I had to go through the whole tenure process. Another strong possibility is Brown University. I spoke uh, in the neighborhood uh, in the fall of 90 and went 
to pay a call to Vartan Gregorian, who was then the president of Brown, before he moved on to the Carnegie Corporation. But by then, I had already become, uh, I'd already uh, gone fairly far along in the steps taken to move the program to the University of Virginia. Gregorian told me that he could hire me. He couldn't hire me in a tenured professorial appointment because the entire university was under interdict by the state of Rhode Island for not hiring women <laughs> and could only hire anybody with permission. And when he heard about the offer, tentative, but the offer from UVA, he said, take it, take it. So I did. <laughs> and it was mostly luck that this happened, the luck and the kindness of strangers. Because I knew Kathy Morgan, the uh, then quite new curator of rare books at the uh, University of Virginia. And when she read in the Book Arts Press newsletter that Rare Book School was for sale, but though she had only been at UVA for four months, she talked to uh, Kenneth Stoppus, who was, was he associate librarian? Was that the title? Yeah the uh, very uh, canny associate librarian of the UVA library. And uh, Kenan Stubbs knew everyone. And in particular, he knew Ray Nelson, who was the dean of the faculty. And uh, Ray Nelson was sufficiently interested in the possibility, he was an English professor before he was a dean, but a book collector, sufficiently interested in the thought of rare book school coming here that he asked the local bookseller, Paul Collins, if he had ever heard of rare book school. <laughs> and Paul and I had never met, but fortunately, Paul had heard of rare book school. That was uh, 1990, the school got started in 1983. So, Nelson agreed to see me. It was August, back in the days when the university started in September. And as one of the suits of the university, you either weren't there because you were fishing, it was August, or you were there girding your loins for the onslaught, which however had not yet happened. So I went in to see Ray Nelson. Well. I graduated from Bristol High School in Central Connecticut in 1959. Ray Nelson graduated from Waterbury High School <laughs> in 1960. The two towns are 12 miles apart. We must have been in the same room. I was in the band in the basketball court. We must have both been there since we played Waterbury. And after about half an hour, Nelson suggested that I come to UVA as a university professor. Now, at Columbia, a university professor is a very big deal. There are very few of them, and they have great latitude uh, and great salaries, too, I might add. And I simply told Nelson that this was aiming too high if university professors at Virginia were anything at all like university professors at uh, Columbia. He said, 
I don't think so. <laughs> well, by a coincidence, I was scheduled to give the annual University of Virginia Library Associates talk in the fall of 1990, two months later. So as I talked to various people at UVA in August, we could say, well, we can continue the conversation in November. But Gene Hammer, who was the director of development at the UVA library, began calling me in September and October, how much space did I need? And did I really have to have running water? <laughs> <laughs> so that, in fact, by the time I came to give the uh, Library Associates speech in November, I was sent to Hugh Kelly's office, the provost, to shake hands. And wandered around the grounds until it was time for me to speak. I was dressed in my interview suit. I walked into the rotunda and met a formidable woman by the name of Betts, known as Mama Rotunda. <laughs> and she came up to me and she said, good afternoon, are you a Boy Scout or a pragmatist? <laughs> and when I looked puzzled, she said, well, the Boy Scouts are meeting, the local council's meeting in the Lower West Oval Room, and Mr. Rorty has a conference on pragmatism going on in the Dome Room. Are you a pragmatist or a Boy Scout? Uh, I've never quite been able to answer that question. <laughs> well, in the event, it did happen. And not only did it happen, but it happened in November of 1990. Precisely what role John Castine played in this, I don't know. It was a narrow window of opportunity, I know that, in which UVA was not under a job freeze, and there were funds available. It was, if I have it right, a time when there had to be a line before you could have a new tenure position, and Kendon Stubbs gave up a library line mm -hmm. and transferred it to uh, Arts and Sciences. It was the line that uh, John Crane had had. If John is here, you can ask him afterwards what really happened. <laughs> After I had been here for a couple of years, I had developed a patter, as one does. People wanted to know what the difference was between being at Columbia and being at Virginia. And this is what I used to say. Well, at Columbia, I would say, I want to do something, and they would say, no, you can't. <laughs> And I would say, well, I'm going to. And they would say, if you do that, we will break your fingers. <laughs> this is Columbia, whose president at the time used to say, Michael Sauber, I am perfectly comfortable with confrontation. <laughs> it was. In Virginia, my pattern went on. I would say, I want to do something. And they would say, I'm sorry, you can't. And I would say, well, I'm going to anyway. And they would say, oh. I guess you can. <laughs> now, that wasn't always the case. But in fact, the support that Rare Books Cove got from the University of Virginia from the very beginning dwarfed anything that Columbia ever provided, even absent-mindedly. In the first place, uh, 
As a university professor, I had no fixed students so that I could devote a great deal of time to moving Rare Book School here and to improving it. In the second place, Virginia already was the best known university in the country so far as bibliographical studies are concerned. The legacy of Francis Bowers, the legacy of uh, Mr. Barrett and of David Vandermillen, who was already uh, uh, poised to step in as the editor of Studies in Bibliography. Indeed, at the November 1990 Friends of the Library group that I spoke at, that's where I met Castine, I also met for the first time uh, Fritz and Bowers, who had never spoken to me <coughs> for me in Columbia because he was too expensive. Mr. Bowers charged for everything that he did. Uh, but he came up to me, and he was within four months of dying. And he said that he wanted me to know that he knew all about my coming to Virginia and he wanted me to know that he thoroughly approved. <laughs> and I said that I am well aware that I am coming in on your coattails, sir. And he said, that is not true, but I'm very glad you think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you look at the original plans for Alderman Library, where uh, the eponymous classroom now is. It said typing room. And in 92 when I came, it had the wooden press that Clint Sisson built. And it had much of the typo collection. God help us, because those books were really valuable. Uh, the typo collection was acquired by the university in 1947 and it's one of the really core collections supporting Rare Book School. It was put together by a printer named, a lithographic printer, if you please, named Stone. <laughs> <laughs> and Mr. Stone collected one book for every year. His 1896 book was the Kelmscott Chaucer. Mm -hmm. His 1500 book was the Hypner Tramachia Polyphily. He didn't have a Gutenberg Bible, he had a facsimile of one, but early on, he had big books, and there are several hundred of them. And they trot out, they trot themselves out in rare book school classes uh, with great frequency to this day. Karen Wittenborg came as university librarian in 1994. And the library was remorseless. <laughs> 93. 93? The library was remorseless in its support of rare book school. Now, some of you know this, but not all of you know this. Academic libraries, uh, academic librarians are not always terribly fond of rare books. They think, and this is the great glory of American librarianship, that the most important thing about libraries is access. Special collections open nine to five only. Special collections open Monday to Friday only. Use a pencil, two books at a time. <laughs> All of this is against the instinct of the great desire of American librarianship. Special collections is thought, and still is thought, by many institutions to be an entirely unnecessary luxury. Now, that was not true at Virginia, but there were still plenty of librarians here who felt that uh, the camel's nose under the tent in the basement <laughs> Uh, had grown, was growing, 
that should be decreased. <laughs> uh, I've always been very grateful to uh, Karen Wittenborg because really she was our landlady and without her support, Rivers could not have prospered here and possibly even survived. The university not only paid for my salary, it also paid for a full-time assistant. So none of this was at the expense of her book school. Incidentally, we were the Book Arts Press when we moved here with a summer school, but it was Tom Cancel's suggestion that it was time to switch the tail and the horse, because Rare Book School was uh, really what we were doing at Virginia, not running uh, a bibliographical printing press. So we became Rare Book School, and Book Arts Press became the imprint that we used on our publications. Warren Chapel was a distinguished American book designer who had a room which we still call the studio behind the room which we used to call the printing office on the first floor of Alderman. And he died uh, between my appointment and my actually coming here. So that room became available as well. And there were two rooms that printing services had across the hall, which they gave up and they are the rare book school offices. And the printing office got uh, an additional space in what we used to call the zoo, the dark back corner of the building. And uh, printing services uh, moved out uh, with the renovation of 2009, doubling, more than doubling our space. The camel's nose under the tent. <laughs> During my visit to the pragmatists in the dorm room, I was puzzled, as I'm sure many people were, by the books in the bookcases that surround the dorm room. It was, I was later told, the world's principal collection of Virginia high school yearbooks. And you could just see people. Are these Mr. Jefferson's books? <laughs> Everyone in vinyl. <laughs> and in an idle conversation with Kendon Stubbs, I said, I could do better than this. Well, be careful of what you wish for, because the rotunda was turned over to us, not only as a storage space, but also as an exhibition space. And uh, a dozen or so UVA undergraduates uh, did major exhibitions uh, in the dome room uh, in a couple of cases with national publicity. It was the first program of its kind in the country in which undergraduates actually ran an exhibition, not helped, but actually devised it and ran it. There was only one person that I am aware of who felt that Columbia was a better place to hold rare book school than Virginia. Virginia allowed the classes to focus in a way that just isn't possible in a great city like New York, where the faculty wanted to run off and look at the odd manuscript at the Morgan, where they were typically house guests and had duties as house guests. At Virginia, the faculty typically doesn't know anybody except rare book school people, so they're more accessible to students here than they ever were at Columbia. The only person who felt differently was Daniel Tracer. Now, Daniel Tracer was born and brought up in New York City and went to the Bronx High School of Science. 
And though he was connected with the University of Pennsylvania for the last 40 years of his long and distinguished career, he returned to New York City for haircuts and a dentist. <laughs> <laughs> and he could not imagine uh, a school of grass. <laughs> we were the first group at UVA to use the rotunda. Uh, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. We were the first people at UVA to use dorm rooms on the lawn. It was thought by housing that nobody would want an unair-conditioned room. But of course, the history aspect of it was enchanting to rare book school students. And uh, the lawn has now been widely used uh, by classes ever since. Let me give you just a couple of examples of how the University of Virginia made the difference. Though I had mailed myself a package for 18 months every day, gradually shifting the Columbia collections to Virginia with the permission of my dean, who had no authority whatsoever to give it to me, but never mind. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that I could not mail, including printing presses and printing type. And uh, thanks to S Steve Rittenberg, an associate provost, at Columbia, I finally got permission to remove the stuff. Columbia didn't want it, but just because Columbia doesn't want something doesn't mean that you can have it. And the difficulty was, I mean, Columbia that had an annual budget of $2 billion, there was no way I could get even on the consent agenda of the trustees. I was a pebble too small to, to, to see. Rittenberg didn't have authority either, but never mind. Uh, Columbia said we could come to Butler Library and take our big printing press and uh, 15 tons of type if Virginia was willing to sign a document that said that if someone got hurt in the process of the move, <laughs> it was Virginia's liability. Now there's no way that Virginia was going to sign that, but a deputy provost named Catherine Reed found that the University of Virginia's uh, Real Estate Foundation could sign it. And they did. And we went up to New York. I hired a roofer, somebody told me, you roofers will do anything. <laughs> and four of them drove up in a 16-foot Hertz truck. That's the largest truck that you don't have to stop at the way stations for. And they spent the night at a motel in New Jersey. None of the four had ever been to New York City before. Came to the back door of Butler Library, moved everything out, and went home. The truck was so low that they got sick of listening to the rubber flaps behind the back tires flop on the ground. But that was no problem. They were roofers. They just cut them off. <laughs> A couple of years later, I asked uh, Catherine Reed if we could regularize this and return the 15 tons of type to Rare Book School. And she came back to me and she said that she was so sorry that uh, she couldn't find the paperwork. It seemed to be lost. And I said, what do you mean the paperwork's lost? And she said, you're not listening to me, Terry. <laughs> the paperwork has been lost. <laughs> <Get it? laughs> 
in terms of space, in terms of administrative help, the uh, University of Virginia's contribution to railroad school has been indispensable. And indeed has been so helpful over the decades that now that most people really have trouble even believing that the university could be so generous. We were the smallest administrative unit on the grounds. But uh, skilled in the arts of self-promotion as we are, we have been able to argue the case that Rare Book School uh, increases the stature of the University of Virginia. And in a small way, I think that's true. Uh, but all the thanks are on our side. Uh, Virginia, I assumed, moving from a private to a state institution, that uh, it would be much more difficult to operate here than it was at Columbia. It proved to be just the opposite in a number of ways. Uh, I asked Ray Nelson about stationery when I came. He said, well, go make some. <laughs> so he did. <laughs> Columbia University has stationery. It's on its own color. It has its own typeface. Nobody at Columbia uses stationery that is not Columbia stationery. And once a year, you put an order in, and there's a two-line slug, which is your department or school. Not here. Uh, we really were left alone to uh, develop the school, to grow the collections. We got a totally unexpected $20,000 gift in 1994. And it was at that point that I realized that the school would begin to continue. It was necessary, I thought, to grow the collections and grow them exponentially because it was very hard to argue to people who were not already members of the choir that Rare Book School was a rare example of first-rate education in this country. The good is the enemy of the best. Rare Book School has always had and continues to have a monomaniacal interest in high-quality education. Most of you here, I hope, know about the uh, Rare Book School evaluations. These are prose evaluations that everybody fills out at the end of the course, and they're all online, and they have been all online since 1995. Every course that's been offered in the school. Students are asked to make prose responses was the instructor prepared? Was the reading list adequate? If there was a field trip, was it useful? What did you like about the course? Did you get your money's worth? This is wonderfully self-correcting, because if a course failed, which it invariably happened, if it happened in its first year, I could go to the instructor involved and say, I'm sorry, I can't possibly invite you back. No one would come. And it takes faculty members with a certain stamina to be willing to teach in a school where the students have this kind of control. It's never been abused. We've had, oh, I suppose between Michael and me, maybe a dozen courses that failed. Uh, and most of you have never heard of them because they didn't last very long. It's also fun to look at the evaluations. A good example would be Erin Blake, she taught the history book illustration uh, in 2005, I think, and her evaluations were good. The following year, they were very good. She had read the evaluations. The following year, they were excellent 
It's been the second coming ever since. It's a great course. But there's a correction cycle that almost never happens in education in this country at any level. And Rare Book School is the only educational institution in this country that I am aware of that uses an evaluation that is as remotely open as this one. The good is the enemy of the best. But let me conclude as I begin. None of this could possibly have happened without the University of Virginia, with John Kestine, with Karen Wittenborg, with Joan Fry, with Jerry McGann, who supported me all the way, and uh, with Michael Suarez. Thank you very much. in the Rare Book School space down in our reception area now. And Terry, I'm sure, would be delighted to, to speak with you all individually and to answer any questions you might have. Thank you. Thanks to Terry. Thank you. 